Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. Hey guys, thanks for coming back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. My conversation with Jill Zimmerman, she is the owner of Perfectly Fit down in Charleston, South Carolina. She's an outstanding uh, physical therapist who went to school with me a million years ago. And she does, she just has an awesome outlook on the profession. We dive into all things hypermobility, how you treat the hypermobile athlete, how you break things down, how important breathing is in teaching stability, and how to identify that which is hyper versus hypomobile throughout an evaluation. But really, there's some great insights in the way Jill just approaches her business, her life, her patients. She is so authentic in the way she connects, and you see it on all of her social media platforms, um, and you see it throughout this conversation, I really think. So there's so much to learn here, both objectively, or let's say clinically from that which Jill Zimmerman shares with us, um, but also interpersonally um, and and the way you develop relationships and how important that is for what we do for a living. Um, I had a great time talking to Jill, catching up, learning about her place down in Charleston, South Carolina. I know you guys will too. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jill Zimmerman. Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. This, I think, is a first, and you're in for a treat. I brought on a classmate of mine, someone who taught me so much 15 years ago when we were slaving away at University of Maryland, Baltimore, trying to figure out how we're actually going to become doctors and take ourselves seriously. And this girl was head of the class, top of the class, someone who I always tried to sit next to during examinations um, with hopes of passing. And so she finally agreed to come on the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. This is Dr. Jill Zimmerman. She is the owner of Perfectly Fit down in Charleston, um, and she's got a lot of awesome things going on. And one of the things that I loved in kind of digging into her specialties is the way she treats the hypermobile patient. This is a patient that has tortured me during my career, and so you're going to shed some light on how we treat this um this uh, let's call it pathology or presentation this presentation of hypermobility because it can be certainly a blessing and a curse so jill first of all what did i miss in your bio anything amazing tell us tell us a little bit about how you got where you are uh not much but um i'm thrilled to be on here i'm so excited it's great to see you again um also like to sit near you in class (laughs) but not because of doing well on exams (laughs) more more because we just had so much fun um but anyway, uh, no, I live down here in Charleston, South Carolina. I own Perfectly Fit. Uh, not much more to it. I just I see a broad range of clients. I see um, I don't I don't exactly specialize in anything. I I like to keep it broad. I like to dabble in a little bit of everything. And I um, 
I, I don't know. I guess we'll just kind of take it from here and see where it goes. <laughs> yeah, but, but good intro. And so it's a good intro because when I first reached out to you, I was thinking more women's health. And once we dug into a little bit, I actually love that about you, that you do not, quote unquote, specialize in anything, but you take a really holistic approach to all of your patients. Um, and that, that resonated with me. Like that got me excited to talk to you because I think when we niche ourselves really far down, sometimes what is it we lose the forests for the trees yeah you just you're like stuck that. in the weeds you're you stuck know in the weeds, right yeah so, so thanks for bringing me out of that and that's why hypermobility a little bit broad but tell me how you define hypermobility yeah so hypermobility can be defined a few ways there can be obviously you know isolated joint hypermobility that we can get through uh you know repetition so uh swimming is a great example high level swimmers they're going to get a little bit of hypermobility in their shoulder joints just by the nature of the sport that's a little bit different than what we're talking about when we talk about some of these like joint hypermobility syndromes and there's a large spectrum of what that means and but basically when you're talking about a syndrome you're talking not just about hypermobility in the joints which is a excessive range of motion in the joints higher than what we would uh, typically expect. But you're talking about uh, decreased elasticity in all of the connective tissues in the body. Okay. So meaning when a tissue is stretched out, it doesn't necessarily come back to its original length as quickly or fully as a typical connective tissue would. So we have that in our ligaments, we have that in our muscles, our bones, our organs, our um, lymphatics, our urethra. So some pelvic floor stuff can be going on there. Um, anywhere in our body where there's connective tissue, our vascular system. So our blood, we can we can see blood pressure um, issues with people who have some of these uh, joint hypermobility syndromes. And Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is just one example of a connective tissue um, hypermobility syndrome. So that that really opened my eyes because as I was listening to some of your your workshops and your webinars on the hypermobile presentation, I never really understood why it was that my hypermobile athletes or my Ehlers-Danlos patients would have these cardiovascular issues, let's call them. Mm -hmm. but that makes a lot of sense. And then tying in the pelvic floor and tying in the digestive side mm -hmm. of things. All of that is because there's just too much elasticity? Um, I think it's not enough like elast elasticity, meaning it doesn't recoil. It doesn't come back. It doesn't come back, right? So it stretches, but it doesn't recoil. Okay. So um, this, the, you know, for the vascular system, for example, you, they have trouble with, you know, venous return and, and, and blood pressure return where it's like the vessels stretch out, but then they don't necessarily like come back together. So blood pools and they get dizzy and they get lightheaded and their body has to work extra hard to pump that blood through their system. So they're pumping out epinephrine to try to vasoconstrict and then they get stressed out and anxious and all these other. So it's like, you can see how it, kind of bubbles up into these syndromes and all of these different things are kind of happening. And it's very misunderstood in the medical community and people really feel that way. And they feel like nobody understands them. Um, and, and they're just sort of at a loss sometimes by how and why all these things are interconnected. 
And so that definitely describes a lot of the Ehlers-Danlos stuff that I've seen. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll get an anxious, a patient comes in, they're invariably anxious, mm-hmm. on edge, um, sometimes like more type A. It's interesting to, to put like a pathophysiology on that as to why that is. Um, so that's that, you know, that clarifies a lot of things. And then also that, that does, it's super helpful with the cardiovascular side. You're taking me back to school when we had to learn all that crap. So, okay, so all of that, all of that starts to make sense now. In in my world, the hypermobile patient, they're awesome at sports, right? They mm-hmm. are on their their ability to reach end ranges, develop force or torque from those end ranges can be really impressive. Like I worked with a lot of professional baseball players, catchers mm-hmm. who are hypermobile and they just sit in that squat like it's the easiest thing in the world. Or the gymnast. They have mm-hmm. to be so mobile in so many ways. And then they come down with all these presentations and that's what I wanted to dig in. So I kind of wanted to like present you this case of the the adolescent gymnast who is so hypermobile and comes in talking to me about their low back pain and m- maybe they have um imaging showing a spondy of some sort but but their back hurts. And how do you approach this hypermobile clearly athlete and how you're going to diagnose their low back pain? Walk me through that evaluation. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends too on whether or not you truly do have somebody who has one of these hypermobile syndromes or if you have somebody who's really worked hard at their hypermobility. So do you have a hockey player who has really stretched out their groin so that they can get, you know, do do their sport exactly do you have a you know a baseball player who's worked on their splits and getting that range of motion at the end ranges that they really need um that's different sometimes than somebody who has a genetic hypermobility component to their entire system. So I would treat those two things differently. But if we're talking about somebody who does have more of this full, you know, genetic composition of hypermobility, I, um, somebody comes in, they have, you know, a spondy, I'm not exactly treating them or assessing them the same way that I would a typical client. I think you can appreciate that. You've kind of said that, oh, the, you know, the, this population is, is tricky, right? Yep. They're, they're tough. Um, and the reason I say that is that, they're going to blow through range of motion tests. They're going to yeah. blow their, their strength test. Their, their, their manual muscle testing is not going to equate to what they're actually fully capable of. It's not going to match out. So you can't really go off of some of those objective, objective measurements. And I go a lot more off of what I, I see. I, I watch people a lot. I watch them the minute they walk in the door. I watch how they're sitting talking to me. I watch their mannerisms. Are they holding their head up with their hands? Or is their head on their chin? Are their legs crossed in their chair? Are they folded up and twisted up into a little pretzel? These are all symptoms of hypermobility. These are all ways, all that twisting, folding, knees up, that's ways to regulate their blood pressure. Okay. So they're all there for a reason. And it's just giving me information. Um, I'm looking at their posture. How are they holding themselves up against gravity? What is their strategy there? Not just like what's, is it, you know, upper cross, lower cross, whatever, but what is the strategy? What kind of tension are they holding? Are they gripping? Are they in a sort of sort some sort of gripping or tension holding pattern to just to manage their body against gravity because they, they lose that they're sort of just like constantly, their tissues are constantly like creeping, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they're not able to sort of like hold that tension. And sometimes they'll overcreate tension in other places to compensate that for that. Um, why? Let me ask you a question, Joe. Yeah, why, go ahead. Why is it so important to start noticing everything? What do you do with all that information? 
I, I, it's, it's just, what do I, that's a really good question. It, it just starts my brain thinking in terms of where I want the rest of the assessment to go. Cause like literally you could assess, I know everybody kind of has their, their typical assessment, but you might want to like tailor it into different places, depending on what you see the minute they walk in the door, you'd be like, you know what? I don't need to do range motion tests. And if I do, I'm going to do it super quick because it's not really going to tell me a whole lot. So let's just do it to do it. I know it's going to be, you know, blown out of the park, but, um, let's focus on some other things. So let's focus on, for example, with a hypermobile client, you know, how does their pelvis move? How does their rib cage move? Those are areas to me that are typically very restricted and don't move well in a hypermobile client. It's the reason why they, they blown out the range in their joints because they don't move well proximally. And therefore all the muscles that attach to the rib cage, all the muscles that attach to their spine and their pelvis and their sacrum, you'll, I'm sure you've seen this, they tend to be on lockdown a little bit with these hypermobile clients. And so they're weird because they're very bendy and flexible, yet they feel so stiff in certain areas and they feel like they have these knots everywhere in their body. Okay, super interesting. I want to get back to, to their, what sounds like can be hypomobility in the face mm -hmm. of this global, global hypermobility. But mm -hmm. you make a great point with why you notice things because it's going to direct where you go next. And so this is something right. that I talk a lot about with my students, which is um, stop just doing things to do things. Notice where you want to go and be exacting, be a surgeon, be, an, be a sharpshooter with what you do next, because we only have so much time on yeah. this planet, let alone in your evaluation. And so right. you better be exacting. And that's what it sounds like you do an awesome job of. As soon as they walk in, you're figuring out what happens next. What I also like to preach is I want to make the case to them when we're done with the evaluation. And so if I can say, hey, you know mm -hmm. why you're sitting like this, wrapped mm -hmm. up like a pretzel? It's because of X, Y, Z. Now you've enhanced buy-in. Yep. Now they know, one, you give a damn because you notice everything. Yep. And two, yeah. you see all of them and not yep. just their low back. So That's a really excellent point. That's an excellent point. I agree with that 100%. Um, and it's not like, oh, I'm just trying to get buy-in. Like, it's legitimate. It's real. It's authentic. <laughs> it's yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it also, you know, it directs you, like, maybe I'm not going to do table tests, and I just need to look at gross movement patterns. So I need yeah. to look at their squat, their hinge, their split squat, their bridging. Their, you know, it's like, skip all the table stuff, and let's just see how this person moves. Like, let's yeah. get to the meat of the issue and why they're here. <laughs> and, and, I think, and I think that makes you... A vet. I think that takes time to build mm -hmm. that, right? And and realize, hey, this doesn't matter. This does matter. But to start out, you got to notice everything. Now, does your spouse get on you like my spouse gets on me about noticing everything? Because I, yeah. think it's, I just, yeah. it's just a sickness, just like hypermobility. I think, I think about that, though. And I think that there's certain brains and there's certain reasons that you and I have gravitated towards the field we're in and, and, and tend to do well at it. And, I, and it's definitely a, a big part of it. Yeah, because we're lunatics. Okay, so, <laughs> so after you've noticed everything and you're kind of thinking about working through um, that that algorithm or, or your evaluation, so you know that the that the presentation standardly or often is hypermobility distally, and at times you can find the find these hypomobility proximally. So how do you start working towards that and identifying what is hypo and what is hyper? Yeah, it's it's interesting because you can you can do a toe touch on somebody, you know, bend over, touch your toes, and and a hypermobile person is going to absolutely, you know, 
on the floor, no issues, elbows even sometimes. But when you really break down like where where in that where what's really bending what's not you may find that there are areas that bend or curve more than others and that's where you start to identify you know which part of the body maybe isn't um bending quite so easily so maybe even you know have them bend their knees take their hamstrings out of it and then see what their toe touch looks like you know take out the areas of um hypermobility so that you can see really where the hypomobility lies. And that's really my uh, key, not just with the assessment, but that is, it's the assessment that's going to direct where the treatment goes, because that is the, the treatment. The treatment is to calm down the areas of hypermobility, to limit, constrain, restrain that hypermobility. So we can focus a little bit more on those areas of hypomobility because the hypomobile segments and areas and um, just areas of lockdown and kind of like that gunky, like not moving well, that's where the pain and the issues usually set in. Okay. So love that. So are you looking at this athlete and really just trying to identify what is tight because that's where you want to be? Is that, yeah, I don't know if it's, it's not really like tight. Like it's not like I'm going around, like, you know, doing, finding trigger points and all that. And like, Oh, this is tight. Let's release that. It's more like, I'm thinking more like bones, like what bones move well, what, 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 what are the muscles that attach to those bones? What do they look like? Is everything moving as a chunk or are we able to get that dissociation of movement? And I'm trying to clear out some of those, um, that lack of dissociated movement in some of it and also create tension in areas that need it. So, um, that's another component of it. So it's like freeing up the hypomobile areas and then build the necessary tension in the areas that just can't find it okay so what moves too much what mm -hmm. moves too little right that which moves too much you're going to try to do what because that's where i struggle i'm good with hey you don't move enough here's how you move it sure what do you do with that which moves too much their hamstrings are just like sloppy rubber bands uh i you create um well, one, a sensory, uh, people with hypermobility struggle with proprioception and sort of connecting with their sensory environment. So I'm trying to create restraints on a system that allows them to access the areas that they're unable to access or find tensioning. They're sort of taking that path of least resistance and you want to help them find that point of resistance. Um, so, uh, <laughs> You know, somebody might need to do, uh, you know, if they have those overextended, over, over flexible hamstrings, you need to find them some hamstring tension. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when they do a forward fold, for example, instead of, you know, they're just going to flop over and then you're going to tell them to come up and they're just going to pull themselves right back up. Mm -hmm. Okay. From wherever they're pulling from, and they're not really connecting with the ground. Okay. You, they're just sort of like flying through space. They're not, uh, it's hard to tell where it comes from because they're such good movers. They're just yep. like, we, right. So forward fold, have them bend their knees forward. So they feel their weight go out of their heels and go more into their midfoot. Now they're grounded. Now they're in their midfoot. Now they're getting that internal rotation through their entire system. They're getting that compression that their body so desperately needs. And then you say, all right, I want you to press through the floor and I want you to push yourself back up without extending your knees. So keep those knees co-contracted at that little bit of an angle. Okay. Mm -hmm. How does that feel different? And they can barely get up. 
they barely they can barely move an inch because all of a sudden you are asking them to create tension in their system and they're like what the heck's going on so it's it's really just kind of like dialing into uh some of their compensatory strategies and like not letting them go there <laughs> okay yeah well well that that those are really awesome cues and i see that a ton that forward fold and that flop right back up so mm-hmm. i think that's a great way to approach that and then you know i'll let like the sports medicine um everyone in the sports medicine community that's listening kind of can there are a million ways to take that right and how to load mm-hmm. them and how to progress and how to regress that let's go all the way let's go like one segment up towards the pelvis because that's something i struggle with is approaching someone like this with this presentation and teaching a core stability maneuver like what is the first core recruitment you go to how do you teach it um <laughs> Um, I love this question because my my thought process on this has changed so much over the last ten years. Like oh, yeah. just it better, com- have. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> just completely changed. Um, first of all, I look at the strategy they're currently using. Right, so I always just start there. Like, what's going on here? Um, so, say we're, uh, you know, we're doing. I don't know what's what cord a plank. You want What do you want to? What, what do you want to look at? A bird dog. A you yeah, know. Dog. Dead bug, dead bug. bug. Okay. Um, Okay. So you look at a dead bug and you look at their strategy. Okay. So they start, you know, moving their arms and legs. What are they doing? Are they pressing their back down hard into the floor? Are they tucking their whole pelvis under? Is everything moving? Are they able to maintain that kind of stacked alignment? Are they losing the floor? Like what's happening there? It could be a number of different things there um, that's happening. Are there, are there, are they able to breathe and, and create, a rib cage that's mobile and three-dimensionally breathing while they're holding that, that no. dead bug position. No, if, if, out. yeah, if not, then like, they're not at dead bug status quite yet. They're at like, just lay on the floor with your feet on the ground and just like figure out how to breathe in this position. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, and so I'm, I'm really looking at breathing. Yeah. And I'm looking, they're, they're very, hypermobile people are great at, they're sort of that whack-a-mole, you know, they're just going to press their bodies into different ways to sense and feel. And if I drive my back into the ground, then I can feel my abs working. That ain't the right strategy. Okay. So sometimes if I see that, I'll put my hand underneath their back and I'm like, all right, I want you to lift your leg. I want you to keep your pelvis neutral. I want you to lift your leg. And I don't want to feel any pre- any more pressure. The same contact pressure you feel in my hand right now, I don't want you to increase that pressure at all as that leg comes up. So I'm going to take away their strategy of like pushing their back into the floor, which is, you know, over contracting rectus, you know, upper abs and, and get them out of that strategy. And all of a sudden they get the reflexive stability that they're looking for. And they're getting those transverse abs to turn on because they're, I'm just taking them out of their current strategy of just like trying to feel everything compensation right (laughs) yeah their compensation so okay if once you do that how do you then take that what's your cue for them to take that home um it's actually surprisingly easy i mean they can put a, a a very thin towel or even just sense they can sense their own back on the ground because I'm I'm going to where their back is touching the ground anyway. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to where maybe their pelvis and their sacrum is touching the ground anyway. And I'm saying, all right, as you lift your legs, don't get heavier into the ground. Don't increase that pressure. Mm-hmm. Literally just lift your leg and, t- and, and breathe okay. while you're doing that. And it's just, it's just, it's, it's creating um, like constraints to the system and a sensory experience that allows them almost to like let go and just 
go figure with it. it out. Figure it out. Yeah. Figure it out. Um, and and most of the most of these people, like you said, they'll learn. Like they're they're quick movement learners. So yeah. I think you know I think there's value there. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about breathing. Um, mm-hmm. And tell me where where does this fit in and why it's so important in teaching core stability. Well. <laughs> I mean, the core isn't like the abs. It's not like what makes up the core, right? So Jill, it's tell like, me what it makes. Tell me what makes up the core. All right. Well, the core is like you know your your house. Okay, you got like the top of the house is the diaphragm, and then you got the sides of the house, which is the transverse abs. You got multifidi in the back, and then you got your pelvic floor in the bottom. That's the foundation, right? So that's a that's a that's a canister. It's a pressure management system, okay? And we need proper excursion movement down of that diaphragm contraction down, which is going to create a lengthening or descension, descending of the pelvic floor. And this is sort of this um this pistoning type action of pressure moving up and down and then an abdominal wall that expands and contracts to allow for pressure changes within the abdominal cavity. Okay. All of that has to happen. Okay. If we don't have all that happening, which by the way, requires a rib cage that moves well, if a rib cage doesn't move well, a diaphragm does not move well. And then the whole rest of the system doesn't move well, but we need all of that working together to get proper synchronization of the abdominal wall and that core working together dynamically. Right. Jill, there's so much there. Like, you know, so like, so how do you tell, where do you start? Where do you start? Someone's not breathing well. They're locked up. They got a tight ass T-spine. They have a spondy because of it. What's your first breathing intervention? Um, Sometimes just bringing awareness to like the fact that they have a rib cage. Okay. (laughs) You know, because like, I don't know. I don't know if you remember, but like in PT school, it was sort of like that wasn't talked about very much. None of this was talked about. Like like a rib cage wasn't part of the human body. No, we skipped that. <laughs> like it was like the it was like the heart sits in there, cardiac, but like that's it. <laughs> they teach that that rib stuff in Delaware. They don't teach it in Maryland. Yeah, no, it was like wild. So the fact anyway. So one, it's being aware of it as a clinician, and then two, teaching your client that the rib cage does exist. Here's why it's important. Your scapula sits on your rib cage, okay? Um, So any kind of shoulder, you know, neck mobility type stuff is going to require a rib cage that moves, all right? And so just a simple one is just lying on their side, you know, go ahead, put your hand on your side of your rib cage, kind of like, you know, cupping the bra line area and just like breathe into your hand. And like, can you feel your ribs move? And where do you feel your ribs move? Front, back? sides are you getting it all or is it just kind of like you know moving in one part not and not the other okay and so can you inhale can you get it to expand fully and then on the exhale can you feel it kind of recoil back together and if people can't feel that on themselves which often they can't i've had practice so i'll actually get with permission tell them to put their hand on my body and i'll say feel this feel that and all of a sudden they go oh okay yeah i get it. i get what that means now so i'm real like hands on um because i want people to to really be able to understand and appreciate some of these concepts now do you see interventions like that teaching a patient teaching this patient they can't breathe they have the low back pain they're high level gymnasts teaching them how to breathe decreases their symptoms uh yeah Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's it's actually I do more rib mobility, rib cage mobility, breathing stuff than I do manual therapy now because it's more effective. Okay. And where do you get that education and know how? Um. Well, 
I, a lot of it started about 10 years ago. I started taking uh, PRI courses through the Postural Restoration Institute. So I took a few of their classes and then that sort of just opened my eyes and that the fact that there was a rib cage, that the fact that there was a diaphragm, the fact that the things that's happening inside of our body is affecting the way that our outside of the body moves and functions and operates. Um, it just really opened my eyes and and gave me sort of permission to start thinking a little bit differently than what I learned in PT school and to start, you know, going in other directions after that. And I've just kind of really, you know, dabbled in a bunch of different ideas after that. But it was the first time where I was like, you know, this is different and it actually works. Like there's it's, something there's something here. Like I don't have to like spend 30 minutes, like, you know, breaking up, you know, soft tissue in the pec, pec minor and, you know, scaling area. If I can just get somebody to like expand better through the front of their rib cage. Like it's like you take the ribs, like what's connected to those ribs, all of those muscles, they're not going to move well. The mus the muscles are not going to change their length and the position that they're in if their attachment point is not moving. Mm -hmm. Right? Like just think about like origin insertion. So it's like when you breathe, you're changing that attachment point. All of a sudden you're getting more dynamic flow um, and less stagnation out of those muscles. Okay, now pull this all the way forward for me. They're they're out of pain. You're teaching uh, a performance side of things. Does, mm -hmm. this, does this become um, in competition or does this become warm up? Like, how are you making this a piece of what they do? Their breathing patterns. How do you incorporate that? Um, I don't incorporate it into. I wouldn't incorporate it into like their actual training. Um, but I think you can incorporate it into warmups, and I think you can incorporate it into accessory work. So you can. Um, you know, say somebody is, uh, you know, doing a row. Okay. And say they're in a little bit more of this, like down chest, like their pump handles dropped and they're just, that's sort of more their, their, their shoulders kind of roll forward. That's the positioning they're in instead of rowing and exhaling, like you might typically cue, you might cue a row and an inhale because as they pull and they, you know, retract that scapula and they expose that chest wall, you want to go ahead and put some breath into that and encourage that, that expansion into that area. Okay. You can do that, but that's, that sometimes it's, it's too heady and it, it screws people up even more. But you know, if, if it's, if it seems to work well, you can do that, but it's more of like the recovery accessory work side of things that I think that you could, you could really throw it in there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really powerful. You know, we, th you think about all the things that PT sprinkle on top of our patients, whether it be warmups or cool downs or, or mm -hmm. readiness and things like that. I think too often breathing is not emphasized enough. Uh, what a great way to affect all of these tissues um, in, in terms of the way they move and the way they affect all the joints, especially the offending joints. So let's shoot all the way back to the core. And so um, I think you did an awesome job of kind of walking me through how to teach a dead bug properly, or at least those beginning steps. How do you then, with all of these theories in mind of keeping that core and that cylinder solid um, and isolating or accentuating the proper muscles to provide that stability, walk me through how you get them to standing and then to loading. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I quite like, I, I kind of don't think about it as much like that anymore. I don't, I don't totally think about like, let's create this like solid chunk of core stability and then let's like stand them up and like keep this perfect alignment. Like it, to me, it's more like the whole system is working together. Kind of like I talked about before with the like forward fold and coming up out of it. Like when you find that pressure through the ground, you are going to get that like 
reactive, reflexive stability that comes with it. So um, I think I just teach now more. I don't I don't know how to quite answer this, but I think that when you I don't know if that's a sign of a good question or a bad question, <laughs> but but noted. <laughs> so say like you're 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 doing a dead uh, yeah like deadlift right like my my focus is not so much on like I mean obviously if you're you're lifting like extremely heavy weight fine but if I'm just teaching you know your average person to deadlift something some sort of weight off the ground yep. I'm not necessarily hyper focused on like brace your core. I'm probably going to be more focused on like, let's make sure that person can hinge really well. Mm -hmm. Like, let's make sure they understand like how to set up into a hinge with their pressure through their like foot. And they are getting that good, like, um, tension in the ground. They're, you know, working on like eliminating that muscle slack. They're just, they're really like connecting to what they're doing. And, and reflexively that core will just kind of kick on, especially if you're allowing them to breathe. And so maybe the only thing I do is while you're sort of set up in this isometric at the bottom, perhaps start there and let me just have you take some breaths. Okay. And as you're breathing in, I want you to just focus on maybe just that, that rib cage, just expanding laterally. And then when you exhale, just kind of let soften back in side to side and just let those ribs come together, come together, come together, come together, come together, hold. All right. Take another breath. Let that breath go into the sides and, and the breathing while they're in that position tends to do the work for you because core canister. That's what it's made to do. <laughs> That's what it's made to do. Yeah. And then how do they know they're doing it properly? What are, what are they supposed to feel? Something different. So they're typically going to feel something completely different than they've ever felt before whenever they've done this exercise with anybody else that they've done it with. Yeah. Oh, and they don't, they'll gas out like that. They'll be like, yeah. oh my God, like my, ah, I can feel my butt muscles and my glutes and my, and, and I feel my abs and I've never felt my abs. And it's like, usually I feel my back and it's, it's, that's, that's their feedback. That's their internal feedback that they are in the right position. And if they can't find the right position, there's a thousand different, you know, sensory cues and modifications and restraints you can put on them. And, and that's a whole different rabbit hole, but that's the idea is to, to try not to use as much of that stuff as possible and just use the internal system to kind of figure it out that's that's super cool now how are you measuring their progress you know like like you said this is tough because they have all the motion in the world and, and depending upon how you test them they might show good strength how do you gauge progress um that's a good question um how do i gauge progress yeah because i'm not taking like objective measurements so much right, right. um Sometimes what you'll actually see is a loss of mobility <laughs> and that's probably not a bad thing, right? Um, as long as they're feeling better. Yeah. Okay. So they're feeling better is one Two, they might actually get a loss of range of motion. The reason is you're starting to build more tension in that system and it's holding, it's holding some of that tension in a good way, right. In a way that's sort of, you know, supportive, yeah. um, they, they mostly they'll lose range of motion a little bit, maybe perhaps, but mostly they'll feel better. They'll feel less of those like tensioning knots. They'll feel stronger. They'll feel more supported. Um, they will be able to lift more without some of these compensations. You'll just see their movement patterns change, which to me is progress. Like that's huge. 
Um, all of a sudden, they're not so sinky and droppy in their hips when they're on one leg and they're or a split stance position. You know, there's just you start to see they look more organized and they look more supported. And to me, that's a win. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Um, have you looked into adding any objective measures for this population that you think, hey, I can come back to this and retest it and show them, show the insurance company or show someone that they are objectively improving? Uh, I know it's a tough one, isn't it? Um, it is. It's a super tough one. I struggle with objective measurements because everybody's, everybody's just so, especially, especially with this population, it's just very, very difficult. Um, because even if you just do like a, you know, a standing rotation test, they're going to, you know, they're going to blow through it. it. It is a quality of movement thing for me. I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to really sit and think about that one. Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder. I know. Um, like, what what does what does um, a single I mean, leg I, isometric? I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I was just gonna say that, like an isometric hold. Like yeah. you could time an isometric hold uh, and measure it until they lose form or something. Like you'd have some or sort force, of right? or force. Or force. Like mm -hmm. if, you know, if if you're using like a tin deck or you're using. Uh, a crane scale if you don't mm -hmm. want to get so fancy that you don't want to get any force plates or anything like that how long can they hold a given output mm -hmm. you got to get really good at pulling away their variables right like yeah. taking away their ability to cheat I, I had a professional field goal kicker um, mm -hmm. and he had a torn rectus and so I, I rigged up the force plates that we have so that he's sitting in the couch stretch mm -hmm. but driving his knee into extension on a plate right. that's elevated behind him uh, there are a million ways to to try to cheat that but you try to um put the foam roller here and then sure how can you recreate that to show him to show everyone hey this guy's better or by the way he's ready to get back kicking field goals from 65 yards so sure so it takes time not everyone has force plates so yeah it's a tricky one i think it'd be cool to do yeah isometric holds in both um like a yielding capacity but also an overcoming capacity and like compare the difference between yeah. those love you that. know i think that that would be really interesting i, I saw um dorsa v have you used any of their stuff mm -mm. They're like um they are a wireless marker system that looks at movement and we use it for runners it's awesome like you can put um you, it takes like five minutes to set up you put a couple markers up and down their legs on their low back and they can go for a run and then they come back and you have all this data um so our running experts down in fells point use it which is awesome um, but they also have a readiness return to sport so it looks at side plank it looks at uh, front plank and it will measure like the smallest amount of movement for these hyper mobile people maybe that's worthwhile mm -hmm. to look at how long can they properly hold it because i think the eyeball test these guys are going to cheat you yeah yeah but it's tricky because then you're still adding in like a, a not objective component like how long can they properly hold it because yeah, they, they are, they can cheat you and it can look, it can look really good. And that's why a lot of these people go under the radar and they end up with injuries because they're like, yeah, I'm in the, I've been doing all these classes or whatever. And everybody says I look great. And I'm like, well, <laughs> they don't know what they're looking at. let's break this down a little bit more. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's easy to just look at something and think it's, but you know, it goes deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so maybe there's something there. I can't wait to see like the Jill Zimmerman scale or something where you come out with a way to do that. Um, I, I think that'd be really, really freaking helpful. Okay. Let's get a little bit more general. Um, tell me some of the mistakes that you see when teaching core stability. Uh, 
Um, well, one, I've kind of already mentioned like too much focus on like isometric core contraction. Um, I think that's an error. Um, I think not thinking about it dynamically, you know, thinking too static, like I said, uh, not addressing the mobility and it's just going, it's just keeps going back to the same stuff, not addressing the mobility of the rib cage mobility, the pelvis in all three planes of motion. Do they even have it available to them? Mm-hmm. Because if they don't, then that dynamic core function, it, it doesn't even know where to go. Like it doesn't even know where that range would be in a controlled, in a controlled way. Exactly. You're not going to get it. Yeah. And I think you're right. As a profession, we do such a good job of getting ahead of ourselves where Mm -hmm. we get too fancy and we miss the basics and the athlete can't do this baseline. And mm-hmm. we're asking them to do this. So how yeah. the hell are they going to be successful up here? You make a great point with, can, can you breathe? Um, mm-hmm. and, and if you can't, like, how are you teaching that? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think there's gold there. And I love hearing your kid in the background. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, you heard that. Yeah. And um, yeah. And just like, you know, uh, you know, thinking about just the anterior posterior tilting, you know, like, do they really have control of that pelvis? Or when they go into an anterior tilt, can they really eccentrically lengthen their abs? Or do they just start pulling from their back? Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like the whole system works as sort of this like, you know, pulley system. So it's, it's really understanding all that too. Yeah. And you know, who does a good job of that? Um, Have you taken any TPI courses or on base you? Uh, I haven't taken any courses, but I've sort of, you know, dabbled with speaking with people. Yeah. So so that stuff is awesome. It looks at the quality of control of your anterior and posterior pelvic tilt and your Mm -hmm. rotation. Um, What does it look like? Um, Mm -hmm. And, and how well can the athlete maintain that? It's huge with the pitchers. Yeah. Um, and so much of that, that which we see. So that's yeah. cool. Now, the, to, to move away a little bit clinically, one of the other things that I just have loved about watching your career is your endeavor into private practice. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. Did you always know you were going to do this and open up your own practice in Charleston? Not in Charleston, but. Anywhere. Uh, no, I did not always know I was going to do that. I, um, I think that there was like a part of me somewhere deep that knew that that was going to happen, but there was the other part of me that was like, you're never going to actually do this. Yeah. Cause you never <laughs> told me when I was planning it, you never told me that you were going to no, no, no. It wasn't something I ever, I was always like, uh, yeah, that's like what other people do. Um, but then I got like into working with people with in, in, you know, outpatient clinics and all that. And I just, I always, um, I never quite got along with my bosses. <laughs> I always had sort of something to say, something that I thought could be done better something. I always had like opinions <laughs> on, on, you know, the way the business was run. And I don't, I don't have any business background, but I started to realize like, maybe, maybe I do have a say in this and maybe I do care about the way that I practice and don't want to be told how to do it a certain way. And, and I, I started, it really started to affect me personally. I was really struggling with work and I loved, I loved helping my people and I loved my patients, but I, I really struggled with the job, mm-hmm. you know, of working for other people. And I just said, I gotta, I gotta do something. Um, and I just got really lucky with the situation I'm in. I actually, um, ran into um, my friend, Dr. Sarah Duval, who runs core exercise solutions. She's a big pelvic floor um, therapist and she was running perfectly fit 
before I acquired it. And I ran into her and I was just moved to Charleston. She already had it up for like a year. And she goes, she goes, you're not like the other PTs here. She's like, you, you're different. She's like, let's chat. And so her and I started chatting and she's like, let's partner. And I was like, okay. Um, and then we're talking about partnering and she's like, um, well, I'm pregnant and my husband lost his job and we need to move. So, um, can you just like buy it? <laughs> okay. And I was like, uh, well, uh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to make this happen. I'm totally freaked out and I'm totally nervous. And I, 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 but I have to do this. Like there, like there was part of me that was like, you cannot say no to this. Like you are a total dumbass If you say no, like you have to make yeah. this happen. Like, and my husband was super supportive. He was like, I'll do your web. He's a graphic designer. I'll do your website. I'll do, I'll do all the branding stuff. Like he just like started taking things off my plate. And I was like, okay, I can do this now. Yeah. But it was intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. It's super intimidating. Okay. So that was how long ago? It'll be 10 years in October. 10 years. Congratulations. Thank you. Incredible. And so tell me about Perfectly Fit. What's it like being a patient there? What's it like being a PT there? Yeah. So it's a very small kind of studio like space. It's not a big gym. We don't have like a ton of equipment. It's just very, very one-on-one, very hands-on, very, um, people come there and they know that they, somebody's going to listen to them. Okay. They know that somebody is going to think differently than some of the other professionals or, you know, um, medical personnel that they've seen. Someone's going to, um, look a little bit deeper, look outside of the area that hurts, figure out some other things that are going on. Someone's going to look at them globally um, and not just look at the the issue at hand, but look at how how can I get this person moving better and functioning better in their life and in a variety of different areas um, and and feeling better for like a lot for like a lifespan. Like it's more of a, a lifespan um, idea and and it's it's about trust. Uh, I have very 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 close relationships to all of my clients. Um, it's, it's very much a place. It's a safe place. I would say people feel really like welcome there and really listen to, and really, um, like, I mean, I can't tell you how many people are just like, I can't, like, I wish I found you like 20 years ago. Like, I I can't believe I wasted all this time and money doing all these other things. And not that I'm like, I'm I'm not like the best PT ever. Right. Like that's, (laughs) but I care a lot. And I have taken courses that up my skill level, but like, the point is, is that like, you just have to be there for people. And that's what I really try to, to hone in on. How do you figure that out? Because I agree with you. It's 95%. It's 95% yeah. getting a patient better. So how and when did you figure that out? Um, I don't think it was like an epiphany. I think it just honestly, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm not like arrogant about it, but I, I it, it's something that comes naturally to me. And, and it's, and I think that's why it, it I just knew when I, um, when I made the transition into being my own boss, I knew it would work for that reason. I knew I could hold on to clients more for my ability to connect with them than for my, I could learn, I can learn whatever, like I can go and take more classes. I can learn more things, but I knew that I would have client retention based on my ability to connect with people. And I just, I, I just, I don't know. It's just part of who I am. And I'm grateful for that. Cause I think that it has really, really helped me keep and, and grow my business. Yeah. Well, well, it, I mean, it comes across in this conversation, came across in school, obviously <laughs> it comes supernatural to you. Um, I do think it can be learned. I think you, you're you're lucky that it, it kind of comes really naturally to you. How do you now balance your clinical um, and administrative duties? 
Well, I keep my administrative duties very, very minimal. That's awesome. <laughs> How the hell do you do that? We need to do a separate pod on that. So I get the um, well, I don't, I, I don't have like a ton of employees. I, I, I just, I've purposely not grown my business in that way. Um, I have a touch of a little bit of a control issue. Um, and I like to just, I like to keep it small. I like to have, I just like to know what's going on. Um, and I don't like to be pulled in too many different directions because I become very easily overwhelmed. So I have to keep it very simple. Um, and I, I have like a accountant and I have a biller and I have a, a system that I do my scheduling through. And I, you know, I pay the people to do the things that I don't want to do. And, um, I have a couple employees that, um, you know, I just keep the way that I pay them very easy and simple. And I've just sort of streamlined the process. Cause that was a concern with me when I was, uh, transitioning, I was like, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And Sarah was just like, I've already got it. It's so simple. I'm going to show you how simple it is. So you have nothing to worry about. And I've just tried to keep it that way the whole time. So that's awesome. I just know myself and I know, like, I can't, I just know where my limitations are and, and where my overwhelm will come from. And I have to keep it simple. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. And a great lesson in and of itself. So yeah. where is this practice in five years? In well, five years. the practice has not changed much in 10 years. I have changed a lot, I would say. Um, but the physical space, the equipment we have, I don't buy a ton of equipment. I like just keeping it very simple. Like I said, uh, so the physical space has not changed much. What I bring has changed. I am ever since the pandemic, I've started, uh, doing a little online side gig business, trying to grow a online business where I teach and mentor other professionals and also provide, um, some coursework and classes for, you know, non-professionals as well. I would like to grow that a little bit to get, uh, to the point where I have some supplementary income that doesn't require me physically being with people. I yeah. do want to do continue to do that. I will not give that up, but you know, as you get older, you want to like, you know, maybe do a little bit less cut down and still feel like you're comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um okay, so are you in network with insurance when you're treating in the in the office? I am not. Okay. So mm -hmm. how long are sessions? An hour. Okay, 101 for an hour. How many PTs? Uh I myself and then I have a PTA and then I have a trainer. So I kind of have this model of like we move people around, you know. That's that's super awesome. And do you sell yep. memberships? Do you sell packages? I do. So I sell most of my clients have committed to packages and I do packages of 10 and then the trainers will do packages of 20. Okay. And um, and where are you getting patients from? Uh word of mouth. Word of mouth. <laughs> yeah, I don't I have I, very few doctors will refer to me because they'll be like, oh, you, I'd love to send people to you, but you don't take insurance. So I can't. And I'm like, oh, well, you can. You just you just won't. Yeah. Um, let's just call it how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't I don't go that direction. It's not worth my time. Um, I I will have some clients who are like, I told my doctor about you. And I'm like, that's great. Like, I'll see if they read. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but it's mostly word of mouth through, you know, patients talking to each other, um, uh, massage therapists, acupuncturists, other people uh, in the industry who would see my clients. So I have a cash pay client. 
where is my cash pay client also going to? Well, they're probably seeing a massage therapist. Maybe they have a tennis coach. Maybe they have a golf instructor. Like who are those people that they're also seeing, um, acupuncture, whatever. And then maybe I can network through them and we can kind of pass people around, you know? Yeah, Yeah. 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 Smart. Okay. So First of all, man, you should have done your own pod because you're so good at this. Thank you. Um, so to, I still can. You didn't mention it on your pod. So, um, okay, so let's do a lightning round. I want quick answers to the following questions. You ready? Okay. What's the biggest professional mistake you've made and what did you learn from it, Jill? Uh, my biggest professional mistake might be uh, just kind of going a little too deep down into some rabbit holes and uh, not really pulling myself out quickly enough to see the very obvious answers, you know, just, you just kind of go down these rabbit holes and you're going, God, I'm so tangled up in the weeds. Like I'm missing like this obvious stuff. Um, So I think what I learned from that is, is that you got to sort of stay in the present moment sometimes, and you can't get too in your head about the things that you've been learning and what you've been doing or things you want to practice or try out and just see the person in front of you. So is that clinical or is that professional? Well, define professional for me. (laughs) Is that clinical or is that business? I would say it's clinical. Clinical. Okay. Yeah. The biggest business mistake you've made. Oh man. Business. Business. My business, my business. Don't date yourself, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be our number wow. one downloaded segment. <laughs> um, I don't make a whole lot of business decisions. This is the funny thing, Yoni. How do you do that? I just, How I just, do you do that? I, it just runs itself. I hate to say that. It's just, it just like, well, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sitting there like you, like I'm not like, you know, building like seven, how many, how many different locations do you have now? No, right. But my point is keeping it, I keep it very, very simple. Um, that's a freaking skill. Give me a mistake. Remember that time you bought the blah, blah, blah. And you wasted all that money. I don't buy a lot of things. I'm trying to think. I mean, the biggest mistake I can say is, is, is their personal mistakes through my business. Like I, you know, I, I, I showed up at work. I, uh, after having a, a, a baby and I shouldn't have, and I, you know, I, I, I go. didn't real, I should have listened to my body. And I, you know, they, they, these, t- those, that was a big mistake of not sort of, um, saying, you know what, like, it's okay to walk away from this business. It's okay to take some time. The business will trust that the business will run itself. Everything will be okay. You're going to come out of this. Um, I didn't, I was totally freaked out and I pushed myself too hard and I should have trusted that everything would have been okay at that time. I'm instead so, of pushing myself. I'm so happy I pushed you on that question because that's an awesome answer. And there's so much in that answer. Um, and it's something that I, that I fight all the, all the time is yeah. how, do you, how do you let go? How do you, how do you have faith in the decisions you've already made? 
and yeah. the sacrifices you've already made that you set something up for longevity and for success and it doesn't need you in that office at all yeah. times your kid does or your husband does or whatever or you, yeah. you need your your own stuff so and i learned a lot from that and it, it's it made me set better boundaries afterwards of time off and you know my own needs i i came out of that experience going wow, I did not handle that well. And I need to set better boundaries moving forward because I've got a kid now and a family and other, you know, and, and it's just, it is what it is, yep. you know, and yep. we all have to share. <laughs> There's only one thing. me. <laughs> yeah. And it's a great thing. Yeah. Yep. That's, okay. So that's awesome. Give me the biggest misconception of private practice. Uh, that they're all the same. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. They're not. They're not. Okay. Good answer. What's the best book you've read in the last three years? I got a couple. I liked that uh, Breath by James Nestor, talking about all sorts of breathing stuff. Um, I love that. You I know. You didn't write that. What's <laughs> the other one? Uh, Jill Miller actually just came out with a book called, um, oh, what is she called? Shoot. Something about breath. <laughs> yeah, oh, really? <laughs> um, and then I had this other one, actually. Oh, Jill, uh, oh, Body by Breath. And then there's this other one called The Revolutionary uh, trauma release process. And it was all about like releasing trauma through like physical movement and like shaking of the body. And I just loved it because it was so outside of, you know, it's probably not like super based on a lot of research, but like, I was like, you know what, like, these are things that if they feel good in your body and they, they, provide a sensation and a feeling that you're typically not holding in your body, then like, who's to say that that's a bad thing? You know, I think it's probably beneficial. So yeah. I just like to read things that kind of challenge, challenge the norm a little bit. That's cool. And I'm not yeah. surprised by that, but that's really cool. <laughs> um, okay. So for someone who it sounds like is um, really specific or exacting about what they do buy for that practice, what purchase have you made for your practice that has been impactful? Um, continuing education courses. Good answer. <laughs> That's a good freaking answer. You think you're not answering my question, but you really are because yeah. it's about the service we provide. Yeah. And I hearken back to, I had this annoying ass conversation when I was your classmate with a business owner, because I was obsessed with trying to open a business mm -hmm. and he owned the PT clinic. And I went over to him and I said, Hey, how do we do this? How do we do that? How do you charge? How do you bill? How do you market? How do you, he's like, just go become a good pt <laughs> solid shut up and become a good PT. <laughs> so but that's what you're saying too jill yeah that's what you're saying too that's what it's about um if you can provide outstanding service you're gonna have an outstanding practice so and connect with people connect with people show yeah. them you care yeah Show me if you care. Okay, yep. Jill, you have been a revelation just like you were 15 freaking years ago in downtown <laughs> Baltimore. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, your thank knowledge. you. Um, this was really freaking awesome. And I know the audience got a ton about it. As always, give us your feedback. Jill wants to know how she did. I want to know how I did. Hit me on Instagram, True Sports PT, or send me an email, Yoni, Y-O-N-I, at truesportspt.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you.